0: Up in the morning at the crack of dawn Down to the kitchen with my long johns on Get out the skillet, put the flapjacks on I'm-a-go-in-fishing Take a deep breath of the morning air It'll chase your worries and lose your cares Grab your rod and I'll meet you there I'm-a-go-in-fishing Jeff Perrin has owned the Fly Fisher's Place in Sisters, Oregon since 1991. He has fished the rivers and lakes of Central Oregon for much longer than that, and he knows a thing or two about fly fishing. His weekly fishing reports at flyfishersplace.com are the best in Central Oregon. How good are his reports? Well, at the beginning of October, Jeff suggested using an olive leech with an orange bead head and uh or a damselfly nymph up at Three Creeks Lake. I fished there on october sixth. I hooked six fish, landed five, all but one on an olive leech with an orange bead head, and the other fish took my damselfly nymph. So <laughs> thanks thanks, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> i love that yeah yeah it was great you know and then i lost both fish both flies coming into the I, I snagged up right near the shore where it gets a little weedy near the boat ramp and and i lost both. i lost both flies but yeah i needed to get off the lake the sun was going down and you know we were up there pretty high elevation yeah. anyway so in this episode, uh, we'll continue a series focused on the hatches and lives of the bugs that trout like to eat. Jeff has talked about the stonefly, the mayfly, and the caddisfly, and all three of them are up on the Fishing with Jeff page at www.theradicalsongbook.com. Today, Jeff will add part four, and this episode uh, is being recorded on October 8th, 2023. Jeff, welcome back to the Radical Songbook podcast good to be here thank you
1: and so what are we calling this one well you know for for a lack of a better term we're calling it the forget me nuts. and these are um things that trout eat that you know are really important on different waters throughout our region um really throughout the world wherever trout are found so um i'm gonna i'm gonna start by saying that you know I, I do a lake fishing presentation um, on a PowerPoint um, and have done that for a lot of different fly clubs, have done it at the fly shop and, and you know, for different reasons. Um, it, it It's really, uh, I think, a really informative uh, presentation and I, I start, when I start talking about what trout eat in lakes, um, several of these, um, well, at least two of the Let's see, we're going through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different uh, food items today, um, uh, categories of, of food that trout eat. Um, two of the seven are in the, in, in the lake fishing presentation I do, the most important um, foods in the, in the top three. Um, so I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to go through some of these, and I'll sort of explain you know, the differences on how they could be important in lakes or rivers, depending on where you're fishing them. Um, and I, I just think it's you know, I think it's something to for the audience to listen to and, and learn more about some things that maybe are, are kinda of below the surface that we don't oftentimes think about because these aren't necessarily major hatches, um, which is where you and I got started with this um, series of programs. We started with, you know, stone flies because we we recorded the first one around the salmon fly and golden stone hatch in the uh, late spring, early summer. Um, and then we went to we went to mayflies and kind of coincided that with, you know, the beginning of the green drake catch and other summer mayflies. And then we then we talked about caddis last time, caddis flies, and um, that was uh, um, timely in that in that you know we recorded that in the summer when caddis are probably at their peak. Um, but these these flies that we're going to talk about today are really good, um, kind of year round. Um, in a lot of waters, of course, our, our most of our lakes here freeze in the winter time, so we're not we're not looking at fishing in the lakes, but but some of these are very important on the rivers, and uh, yeah, let's dive into it. So, all right, first, the first one on on my forget me not list um, are midges and chronomids. and 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 midges are midges and chronomids are the same thing. Those are, that's a synonymous term for the same insect. Um, usually, what we call midges. Are, are very small, um, probably size 18 or smaller. Uh, you'll see uh, midges, um, you know, way down into the size 24, 26, even 28 hook size. That's too small for most of us to tie onto to a leader and, and effectively fish. Um, however, you do get midge hatches on some of the rivers um, that'll be, you know, size 18 or 20. And you can tie a fly that you can actually see you can thread that onto a 6x tippet and fish it effectively, whether it's in the larval stage, the pupil stage, or the adult stage, or even an egg-laying stage. Um, chronomids are, are are referred to as the larger, typically lake-dwelling uh, midges, um, and I don't know why, over the course of fly fishing history, um, they call the same insect you know kind of two different things, but but they truly are the same. Same family, they're in, the, they're in the family of chronomids. Um, the, the chronomids are, I, I mean, I was at Lava Lake uh, this week and saw a few chronomids that were probably about a size 10 hatching. Um, that's a little uncommon. We do see those uh, this time of year. Um, those giant chronomids actually have another nickname. They're oftentimes called buzzers um, from when they hatch into the adult. They kind of buzz over the surface and and sometimes can create a little bit of a feeding frenzy, but typically the fish eat those either in the larval stage or the pupal stage. Um, Most of the chronomids that hatch on the lakes around this region are going to be between about a size 14 and about a size 18. Um, And colors that are really important when you're talking about the the larval stage are typically either kind of a blood red color or have some, sometimes they're amber color, sometimes they're olive color but might have a little bit of hemoglobin uh, in them even in those uh, color schemes. Um, But typically a bright red, uh, worm-like fly tied on usually a curved hook uh, and fish just kind of static near the bottom under a strike indicator is a great way to imitate that in, in lakes. Um, but the pupil stage is where things really start to get interesting. And I, you know, I know you and I have spent a lot of time fishing lakes together over the years and, and I've had you fishing, you know, a pupil stage chronomid, um, under, underneath the strike indicator, sometimes two at a time, one a little deeper than the other one, um, and fishing that over weed beds or, or sandy, silty bottoms where those, uh Emerge, and you know that at at times, if you can match the the right timing to the color and and size that those pupa are coming off, um, you can really have a heck of a bite um, where you know you're catching several fish an hour for quite quite a long period of the day. Um, typically, the the pupa. Um, are going to be a few different colors in this region. We we oftentimes see them in black. Um, we'll see them um, olive with a little red tip at the end of the of the butt. Uh, we'll see them in tan. Um, a re- an all red pupa can be very important at times, um, particularly when they're they're first down a little bit deeper and first emerging um, before they slowly ascend to the surface. A red one can be great. Um, but they can be all kinds of colors. If you looked in my chronomid box that I carry um, out on the boat, uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of different, you know, size and there, well, there's hundreds of flies, um, but uh, size and color variations. Some with white beads, some with dark, you know, dark gunmetal beads. Um, some with little white gills on the front, which actually imitates the breathing filament at the front of the uh, actual insect. Um, and oftentimes tied with a, with a shiny ribbing uh, over the body. And the, the ribbing adds segmentation but also adds some flash. And the reason that we do that is when, when you have a chironomid detaching, they will um, pump themselves up with, with a little bit of gas, uh, and that gas becomes very shiny underneath the water. It collects uh, any sunlight that's penetrating down uh, into the depths where they're coming from. And as they're ascending towards the surface, they are very, very shiny. And that's something that the fish can key in on to find them as they're hunting down their food source. They can, they can really search out that shininess. And so a lot of the flies that we're tying have, you know, silver or gold, um, sometimes copper uh, wire that has, you know, has some shininess to it. Um, and lately, a lot of the flies are being tied with a a strip of window tint material, um, and and you can get window tint material in a lot of different colors. But it, but as you you know, as you've seen on, you know, a car that has tinted windows, um, that tint has some some shininess to it to uh, deflect the sun's rays. And somebody, I think, up in Canada, found that this material works really great for, for ribbing um, chronomid bodies and and or using. That actually for the body and then putting a wire rib over the top of it for contrast and, and segmentation. So, it is a really fascinating, um, you know, way to match the hatch and, and go after fish. But, but those are, uh, over, you know, most waters, um, um, regardless of whether you're in a river or a lake, uh, trout probably eat more midges and coronamids, um, than any other food item. Uh, offered to them throughout the year because their 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 biomass is just enormous. There are so many more midges and chronomids than there are any other food source um, underneath the water. And so they're constantly, you know, available to eat the the larva or the pupil stages and during a hatch will sometimes uh, come up and eat the adult stages or the emerging stage between the between the the pupa and the adult um, as it's at the surface so it's a very very important um, fly to understand um, and to match when you're out on the water, regardless of whether you're on rivers or lakes so a quick question so the the color that we're talking
0: about like red a red butt on a fly or the flash that you're talking about those are not just done just to attract a fish they're actually based on the actual colors of the
1: midges, is yeah, that correct? yeah, yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yeah, and and in some cases it might add to the attraction, um, and and be some something of a bit of a contrast to the millions of or tens of thousands anyway of of uh, other you know chronomids that might be down there. But at the same time, um, those are naturally occurring colors in the world of of, uh, of chronomids. So yeah, it's 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 natural. Cool. Yeah. I I would tell you really quickly, um um this uh spring, um uh, particularly up at Hosmer Lake, uh on a size sixteen um uh two extra long uh nymph hook, uh we we're putting a tying on a white bead, a white metal bead, um and just using some olive kind of uh darker olive thread um and then tying in a strand of, of either red crystal flash or red flashaboo. Um, at the butt and then, and then tapering the, uh, the olive thread for a slight taper to the body and then just segmenting that red uh, flashaboo over the top of the olive thread. And so it, was, it, it had that kind of barber pole effect, only instead of being red and white, it was red and green with a little white bead on the front. And for about a month this year at Hosmer Lake, um, and also, quite frankly, at, at Crane Prairie, on some of my early trips to Crane Prairie, that was that was the fly um, to fish for, for the the early period this year. So it was, it, you know, for those of you that are listening, that tie flies maybe consider tying some of those for next spring. All right. Well, next is is um, I'm going to kind of lump these together: damselflies and dragonflies, and even though they're they are not in the same family, they're oftentimes confused for one another. And I'll give you an example of that. So when, um, uh, for about the last, oh, 35 years, um, or 30-something years anyway, I've been teaching a class at Blackbeard Ranch um, on fly fishing and fly casting. Um, It's now on Saturday mornings, but for uh, most of those years, it used to be on, on Tuesday evenings in the summertime. And I would start the class out by holding a damselfly, um, adult pattern in my fingers that I just had taken out of my fly box and say, So, what, do you, what would you guys call this? What is it? And, you know, if I had ten people at the class, um, you know, eight or nine of them would, would say, It's a dragonfly. And, and, you know, probably the last person would say, I don't know, you know, but, but they're really, you know, dragonflies are very recognizable, um, but dragonflies are, are very big and they have four wings and um, they're quite robust uh, from their nymph stage to their adult stage. They're really large insects. Um, damselflies have two wings and are very very thin bodied um, as both the nymph and the adult, and that is um, a easy way to tell the difference between them. When dragonflies stop, let's say they land on your float tube or on your boat or even on your knuckle. Um, which, they, for some reason, when I'm holding my oars, they always are landing on my knuckle. I don't know why. And uh, they, um, they, when their wings are at rest, their wings are out to the side. When damselflies' wings are at rest, they fold back over their body. Um, and that's another key identification uh, to be able to tell the difference between the two bugs. But, but mainly it's about size. Um, this time of year, uh, there would be very few adult damsels or dragonflies left. Um, and probably after um, midweek of of, uh, of this coming week, where we're going, you know, it's supposed to be 82 degrees today, um, and up on the lake, it's still warm and sunny. Um, but uh, um, there's still a few around, um, but it's supposed to start snowing up in the in the lakes here for a few days this week, and get cold and windy, and and that's uh, probably going to be about done for damsel and dragonfly season, at least in the adult phases um, for 2023. That being said, the the nymphs um, are going to be available all the way until it starts icing up, and that the nymphs of both can be really important in the fall and also very important in the spring before um, the hatch starts again in the late spring and summertime. Um, because the those nymphs of both, uh, jamselflies and dragonflies, this time of year are gonna start migrating out of the shallows and going out into the deeper water for winter, uh, whether it be more um, oxygen, uh, more cover from the ice, uh, more hiding places, Um, from predators, a.k.a. trout. Um, And then in the spring, when the ice comes off, uh, they'll come out of that deep water and immediately start migrating in towards the shallow water where they'll be able to um, get more warm, early spring uh, water. It warms up faster in the shallow water and there'll be more food there. Um, And it's just a a worthwhile place for them to start going because that's where they're going to hatch out um, eventually next summer. So... um, what i find is in the in the damselfly world the nymphs and the adults can be very important um food sources to match as a fly angler so uh it's not uncommon in you know especially mid june to about maybe the first to mid september to be able to fish a damselfly adult which is a beautiful blue long extended body um with you know, with 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 really cool you know white wings, uh, maybe some hackle um, that um, uh, floats really well, and to be able to fish it, you oftentimes will get some pretty aggressive takes with that um, that damselfly adult pattern, where sometimes they'll just leap out of the water and really really crush it as they're coming down on top of it, or they'll come up and just really make this swirly splashy take at the surface to eat it. Um, and other times, they they sometimes just open their mouth and kind of sip it down. But but I would say for a damselfly take, it's a lot more excitement than the take that you would get on on a lot of other dry flies on the lakes. Um Dragonflies. Typically, we don't see the trout in in our area eat too many dragonfly adults. I mean, I'm not saying that they never do it, but I I spend a lot of time on the on the lakes where dragonflies are really prevalent. You see them flying around a lot, hovering over the water, um, and you just don't see that many fish eating them here. Um, in Argentina and Chile, where I go a lot in the wintertime, um, there's about a month-long period where, that's in the lakes down there, that's one of the trout's main food sources, and you can count on being able to carry some dragonfly adult patterns down there um, and having an actual season where you know where it's the hatch and that's what you're matching, um, but the, again, the nymphs for dragonflies are very important. And in fact, I would bet that a lot of people that have fished an, an olive wooly bugger or a brown wooly bugger um, have fooled fish into thinking that they're eating a dragonfly nymph. So while they may ha- not have had a perfectly matched dragonfly specific pattern on that they're either, you know, kicking around, trolling, you know, in the shallows with their intermediate line. They might have that woolly bugger on thinking that it looks like a leech. I'm telling you that a lot of those fish probably got fly as a dragonfly nymph. Um, and yeah, there are, there are some really cool dragonfly nymphs, but, you know, if you're catching them on a brown or olive woolly bugger, um, keep at it because that's a great fly to match dragonfly nymphs too. Damselfly nymphs are, are typically so much thinner that you would have to almost, if you were doing a woolly bugger type pattern, it would have to have a really, really thin, um, like straggle string body or, or thin dubbed body, very, very uh, sparse tail. Um, but I, I, you know, there's so many other great damselfly patterns uh, out there some that we now tie balance, like a balance leech that you fish underneath a strike indicator, um, and and some that are tied more traditional nymph style that you could strip, um, either on a you know some kind of a sinking line or even a floating line in some instances. But dragonflies and damselflies are not to be forgotten, uh, particularly in still water. So lakes and ponds are there. Dragonflies and damselflies in rivers there are indeed, but I don't find them to be terribly important. I wouldn't put them high on my list to match in rivers or streams, but would put them very high to match in lakes and and ponds.
0: So I have a, a memory of back in 1997 when I first came to Central Oregon to fish before I moved here, and I went to the Fly Fisher's Place in Sisters, and I was encouraged to go to Hosmer. It was in July, and I was encouraged to go to Hosmer and and uh take along some adult damsel flies beautiful blue flies that that you had had somebody there uh had tied and i was and i was told just follow the wind and go you know if the if the wind is blowing into the reeds go over there that's where you're going to see a lot of damsel flies is that they you know and i and i did that and it was in the main lake at hosmer and i had yeah. a wonderful day just you know f- the fish were just hammering uh these blue damsels, and these blue damsels were like, well, as, you, as you say, all over my float tube and and on my rod. And all that it was. A, yeah, it was really it was a, it was really a uh, a great way to be introduced to um, fly fishing in Central Oregon. So
1: and thank I would you. Say so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the damsels, you know. I mean, that, we really owe it all to them, Michael.
0: And that ends part one of Jeff Perrin's look at what he calls. The Forget-Me-Not Flies.